Today's show is brought to you by CBT Nuggets. You know how much we value ongoing education on the Cloudcast, and CBT Nuggets is exactly what Aaron and I wish we had when we were trying to get our certification early in our careers. CBT Nuggets is all about bringing a personalized touch to learning about cloud computing, virtualization, networking, DevOps, and much, much more. Whether it's their hands-on labs with personalized coaching or the online chat functions that come up with every instructor-led course, CBT Nuggets' team of experts is always there to help you get the most from your training and your PASA certification. You can check it all out at cbtnuggets.com cloudcast and sign up for a free trial. You get access to the full catalog of great training, including virtual labs, quizzes, and other premium features completely free for the first seven days. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope everybody is doing well. Another Sunday's Perspective show, and this is going to be part two of our Innovator's Dilemma look. Uh, If you were listening last week, uh, last Sunday, we did sort of part one of Innovator's Dilemma. We really looked at some of the companies that are trying to pick away and chip away at AWS's lead in public cloud computing and some of the ways in which they are going about doing that. Uh, We really kind of focused in somewhat on... um, Cloudflare's R2 announcement, but we tried to take it in a little bit bigger perspective and really look at some of the ways in which, uh, you know, a company moves from the innovator, uh, in the case of AWS, to becoming more of a mainstream and how the next generation of innovators really kind of dive into uh, trying to attack them, trying to find uh, their vulnerabilities, or in many cases, looking for their most profitable areas and and trying to take a innovative approach to, um, you know, try and win customers from that business, try and uh, you know, position themselves in ways that may not be visible from day one, but as they grow the business, uh, gives them some core attributes that they're then able to make a next, uh, second, third, fourth move in an innovative or st- uh, innovative strategy. Uh, we kind of dove into that uh, throughout that call or that that show. What I'd like to do in this one is take sort of a different perspective. Um, this one was, uh, you know, kind of popped in my head as I was reading an article that was written a couple of weeks ago uh, or so. Uh, it was an article uh, in a magazine or an, uh, I guess a magazine, a website called uh, Protocol. And it was really looking at IBM's journey in cloud. And, and I think they called it uh, why IBM lost the cloud. Um, I want to use that as sort of a foundational starting point. I'm not going to dive into all of the IBM stuff. People can read it. But uh, I want to kind of dive into you know, the perspective of a large incumbent company, uh, what they go through in terms of, you know, how do we adjust to a big change in the industry? Literally, all the rules of the game essentially change. And what's the mindset that happens uh, within organizations? And, you know, again, we won't necessarily use IBM as the only example. I'll use some examples from my career uh, as to how to look at that. So we're going to dig into all that right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by PhoenixNap, the global data center and infrastructure as a service company. Their bare metal cloud helps you automate server provisioning using API, CLI, or popular infrastructure as code tools. You can simplify your infrastructure management tasks and focus on your code to get it out fast. Bare metal cloud is simple to deploy, manage, and scale. With more than 20 advanced configurations that are available for near instant deployment, including servers with third generation Intel Xeon scalable processors. You can choose between six global locations and get 15 terabytes of bandwidth for free. Leverage raw power of dedicated servers for cloud-like flexibility. Get Bare Metal Cloud today by visiting 
phoenixnap.com slash bear-metal-cloud for more details. That's phoenixnap.com slash bear-metal-cloud for more details. And we're back. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to dive a little bit into sort of the, the other side of the coin from an innovator's dilemma perspective, looking at um, you know large companies, existing uh, incumbent companies, and how they deal with uh, the innovators. You know, how do they deal with it? Um, how do they deal with it well? How do they deal with it poorly? Um, and as I mentioned, you know, I'm going to use the article that was written about IBM Cloud as kind of a template. Um, I'm not going to sort of make this a commentary on IBM Cloud. Yeah, maybe we'll do that at some other point. I know I've done some shows in the past that were kind of retrospective on things like Cloud Foundry and Docker and OpenStack and some other technologies. Uh, you know, for the sake of me enjoying... Um, you know, still being employed uh, and the fact that my day job works for Red Hat and so forth. I'm not going to dive into that. And plus, I think in, in all fairness, uh, I wasn't there for most of uh, the life of IBM Cloud up until, you know, just recently. So I don't really have any great insight beyond, you know, what any outsider could have seen what was going on. But what I want to do is I want to take the framework of the way that they talked about the IBM Cloud um, and, and the struggles and how they dealt with transition and, and you know, the what ifs and so forth as kind of a framework or a blueprint as to, you know, how various incumbents uh, have dealt with this. And, you know, I've, I've been, you know, throughout my career in a couple of different uh, situations in which I worked for the incumbent, uh, also worked for the, uh, the innovator, and kind of have some perspective on sort of both sides of that. So, I'm going to kind of dive into this. Uh, you know, the first thing within the the article that was written about IBM Cloud was, you know, their their kind of realization, I guess, if you will, that they really needed to be in this business. And they said, you know, this was kicked off because uh, AWS around the 2013, 2014 timeframe won the CIA sort of federal government, you know, the earliest GovCloud before the official GovCloud came along. But uh, for those of you that weren't around at that time, uh, the CIA had a very large, about a $600 million uh, opportunity that was out there. It was one of the first um, you know, sort of open bids for cloud. And it really kind of solidified uh, AWS cloud as going from what was this seemed to be this very sort of niche little thing, uh, maybe specifically for startups, to something that was going to be able to address big, complicated, uh, uber secure environments. And it really was something that AWS at the time used as a feather in their cap to say, hey, if the CIA trusts us, uh, you know, lots and lots of other companies can trust us. And so it was in the mention of the article that that was kind of the the wake up call, if you will, the light bulb moment for IBM to say, hey, um, you know, we didn't win this thing. We, you know, we are one of the largest computing companies in the world. Um, we need to think about things, and and that's a pretty normal thing to happen for for the company, right? It's very rare that any large incumbent company just uh, comes out of the blue and says, hey, we would just uh, like to change our business model, change our technology stack, change basically everything that we do in business just because, right? It's almost always that some sort of fire drill happens and it's oftentimes, uh, you know, a negative situation, right? You lost a deal, um, you know, some sort of perceived to be bad thing happened. And, and that's when leadership, you know, oftentimes goes, okay, uh, it's now real to me. Maybe people internally have been talking about this for a while, people that think a little further down the road. But you know, the first time that you start to impact somebody's livelihood, their income, their revenue stream, whatever it might be, their ego, um, is oftentimes when this happens. So the first thing that it, it says, you know, IBM had to do, and again, many companies have to go through this, which is sort of this buy versus build decision. 
And this is this is a really, really critical decision because the the outcome of this decision, buy versus build, oftentimes is you know, not a one or two year decision, but oftentimes a five to 10 year decision. The ramifications of this are are five to 10 years. And you really have to step back when you're making this decision, not of, hey, you know, like oftentimes it gets positioned as like, well, you could use this a freely available technology, like you could use open source technology, or you could buy it from a vendor. But in the case of you know building something like a cloud environment that you're then going to turn into a consumable you know, commercial offering, um, you really have to understand the scope of the problem. Like, why are people all of a sudden, you know, considering cloud computing, right? What's the scope of it? And the second thing you really have to understand is what's the velocity of change that this is going to create, right? And then the third question that you really have to ask yourself is how well, given, you know, what you think the problem space is, um, if you're going to build this, how well realistically can you execute? Now, let me let me break those down a little bit, right? The scope of the problem in the case of cloud computing wasn't people don't want to have their own data center and they want to have a different data center. It was very much the, uh, you know, in, in many cases, it was, you know, developers, application teams, lines of business, a startup. Economically, people, uh, you know, who were originally consuming AWS basically said, like, I can't operate in the exact same way that I typically would in a normal centralized control, lots of CapEx up front IT organization. I have to do something different, right? And and so that was the scope of the problem. The scope of the problem was uh, people were extremely frustrated with the way that you had to engage in an IT model. It was CapEx-centric. It was long contracts. It was uh, slow provisioning. Very few things were automated. Everything was, you know, human-driven. There was very little API-drivenness to it. Um, you know, you couldn't uh, make a mistake, right? You were making long decisions, three, five, seven-year decisions. And so all those things were frustrating. And those were all things that even in the most simplest terms, AWS uh, was beginning to solve for people, right? They're giving them the basic primitives, yes, compute, storage, networking, database, but they were doing it in these really, really different ways. And so understanding the scope of what they were doing different was was really important. And I think, you know, if you look back at, you know, in this case, the IBM example, they probably didn't understand the scope of that. I think they perceived this as very much um, these were people that were, you know, the, the, the customer base, the market was trying to get out of their own data center. And, you know, they looked at it probably more as, you know, like a colo type of thing or sort of what Rackspace used to do where you were sort of renting stuff, but, but very, very different. The velocity of change, um, you know, is something that they probably didn't understand either because, you know, if you're a company who is very used to having long-term contracts, right, and it's not unusual for the incumbent company to try and, uh, you know, get their customer into one-year, three-year, five-year, seven-year, 10-year contracts. And so the the concept of being like, you only want something for a month or a week or a day or a few seconds, like you can't wrap your head around that, right? And and the amount of change and the pace of change that can happen in those situations, you kind of can't wrap your head around it. And more importantly, your business model isn't designed to cope with those sort of things, right? Like you have entire ways that you go to market, ways that you sell product, all those types of things aren't designed around a velocity of change that that's radically different. And then the third piece of it is, you know, um, you have to be very realistic with yourself of saying, okay, uh, if we're not going to buy, so in the case of IBM, uh, they decided to buy uh, SoftLayer, right? Uh, we've seen with lots of other companies, 
they will, um, you know, try and build things themselves, right? And I'll give you an example. I worked at Cisco for a long time. We used to have this thing that we did uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where we would um, essentially sort of fund a company or fund a well-known engineering organization. They would go off and build it as if they were a startup, but then they were sort of, uh, you know, contractually obligated to come back into us, right? So, um, we understood their ability to deliver technology. We were able to pay for it in a certain way. And I'll, I'll get into it a little bit more and what that means. But like, you know, if you are building a, a roadmap that you're going to build something and you make it the most rose-colored glasses thing and you say, well, you know, we will be completely competitive in this situation. In this scenario, we will have all the right functionality, all the right technologies in place within some amount of time, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, whatever it is. And you're really fooling yourself because the people that are doing it have never delivered this before. The odds of it happening, you know, have to be perfect to meet those dates. And the reality is maybe it's going to be twice as long as that or three times as much, or maybe it's going to cost two, three, five, ten times as much. If you're not realistic about those sort of things, this is where you really can get yourself in trouble. So, you know, that's sort of the first thing that you've got to figure out is do I get the market do I understand the problem? Do I understand what the change status is? And you're ultimately sort of saying, should I build or should I buy? Right now, the next thing that you have to understand is whether you build or buy as the incumbent, right? You are acknowledging that the current business you have isn't well suited to deal with this this uh, sort of innovator's dilemma, right? So. Um, you know, and this, this happens to everybody, right? I mean, it's this same story can be told for Dell or HP or VMware, right? I mean, we've seen all of them try and anybody who was sort of incumbent in this space, especially on the compute side of things, um, who could have built a cloud and people could have said, oh, you should have built the next cloud. I mean, you had all the resources there. Well, you're also sort of admitting that your business in taking on this new thing isn't capable, isn't prepared to deal with that. Right. And and there's a lot of sort of ramifications that go with this understanding that as a company, you you come to a realization, your leadership team, your strategy team goes, hey, we're not prepared. Because in most cases, your business, especially as you're growing or you become incumbent, you feel like you're pretty well prepared for a lot of the problems that your customers are going to throw at you. You're able to deal with competitive threats. You're able to deal with changes in the market. But when you've got to do things really, really differently, right? And in the case of trying to compete with a on-demand public cloud available globally, all those sort of things, different business model, different payment model, you're sort of admitting, okay, we couldn't do it. Now, the flip side of that is once you decide what you're going to do, so you're going to buy somebody to help you or you're going to build something, you then have to deal with the internal blowback of, hey, why is that group now getting all this attention? right is is the existing groups the ones who are probably making the most money for you right and this could be in any business right this could be um you know the people that build uh gasoline engines for ford motor looking at the launch of the f-150 all lightning and going hey why is that getting so much attention right like we're still making the bulk of the money right like we're still cranking out the most cars like this isn't a, a technology you know Uh, only problem. This happens in all sorts of industries. And so you've got to manage that well, because what's going to happen is you're going to have what's perceived or used to be talked about as as, uh, bimodal, right? Like the new stuff, the new cool stuff, and the old stuff, the legacy stuff, the heritage stuff, right? And people don't necessarily in technology want to feel like, hey, I'm working on old stuff. People have forgotten about us, right? So you got to you got to manage through that, right? And I'll give you an example. You know, I talked about when I was at Cisco, um, we, you know, 
for a long time, we used to acquire companies. Uh, we acquired a lot of companies. When I was there, we acquired 125 companies in a little more than 10 years. We were doing it all the time. It was like every month. And then they sort of had acquired a co- one company, had done incredibly well. And then it, that engineering team got bored and we decided to spin them out, give them a whole bunch of money. And then as they built this new thing, which, you know, because they were the incumbents internally, couldn't build it internally. They didn't have the resources to do it internally. But if they spun themselves out, we threw a bunch more money at them and they were freed up from doing the old stuff, they could do this new thing. Well, that sounded cool. And they did happen to come back in. And, you know, there was some sex, sex stories with that. But there was also all sorts of animosity. You know, why weren't other people chosen to be able to go do this? Why weren't certain people chosen to be able to join that team, right? Like, you have to be able to manage all those sort of things. So um, whether you decide to acquire or whether you decide to build, um, you know, not only is that decision important, but the how do you manage the transition? How do you manage this group that probably isn't going to make a lot of money? It's probably going to cost a lot of money up front. It's going to get a lot of attention. It's going to sort of look like the new shiny object. How do you manage that with the people who are already doing the old thing, the existing thing, the thing that makes all the money and pays everybody's salaries and all that sort of stuff? Now, the third thing that really comes into play is uh, you're going to do something new. And a lot of times what happens in these scenarios is from a simple perspective, you look at it and you go, well, what are they doing? So if you were looking at AWS from the outside, you would go, well, they're offering x86 compute. They're offering object storage and, and you know, maybe sort of a variant of block storage. Okay. They have basic networking, right? You know, IP networking. Um, and you know, they had a couple other basic things where they had, you know, a SQL database, they had a, you know, message queue, but you, you may have been a large company looking at that, like an IBM or, or really could have been a lot of companies and said, boy, that's, that's not really all that unique. It's not that differentiated. That tech stack isn't very sophisticated. We could do that. We have a lot of those things in house, or we could build that with open source. And so you have to start looking at the technology stack. And what you come to realize is that the technology stack itself is almost less important. And what you have to understand is what's the transition in the technology. So in the case of uh, you know, AWS cloud or any public cloud, it wasn't that they offered x86 or a virtual machine or anything like that. It was they were operating the software for you. They weren't offering the software. They were offering the software managed by somebody else in a fully automated way on demand, delivered through an API, able to be built on a you know granular level. That's what they were offering. That's what their technology stack was. And if you you know you think about the power of what any of the cloud providers do today, it's not in the actual technology they offer. It's that they offer the manageability of that technology, the ability to do it, the ability to bill for it, the ability to provision it, the ability to automate it, all those sort of things. It's not just the technology, but it's what's behind the scenes that people see value in. And so if you look at it just from the perspective of, hey, we're not that far behind from a technology perspective, we have those things in-house, or we could go buy somebody that looks like they have those things, you're probably not necessarily understanding the big picture. And I think that's ultimately, you know, kind of what IBM ran into with SoftLayer in that, um, you know, they had a technology stack that wasn't necessarily going to be super compatible with what IBM was doing. It was very x86 focused. IBM was very IBM hardware focused. It was very small, medium business focused, all right? So the scale and scalability wasn't really there. And it wasn't really designed to be a purely on-demand service in the sense of, you know, not it could be automated and provisioned, but, you know, you were turning it on and off on a pretty rapid basis and scaling it pretty rapidly. So understanding the tech stack is really, really important. 
the next piece becomes, you know, how are you designing this thing, right? And, you know, if we look back at uh, one of the things that was a big hindrance uh, for for IBM and SoftLayer in the early days and something that Gartner always used to ding them on, it was, well, when I want to go provision your thing, you say that you're on demand, but your, your, your on-demandness is not in line with what the sort of new expectation is of the market, right? You could get a Amazon VM in a couple of minutes. It sometimes would take hours or much longer, maybe days to get a whole bunch of IBM VMs because they weren't designed, they weren't architected on the back end to do that, right? So you have to think about your architecture. Is your architecture just sort of retaking what somebody has today? Or are you really designing it for where the future is going? Are you designing it for five years from now, three years from now, you know, scalability to add new capabilities that you hadn't even thought about, right? Like you got to be thinking about all those things. And probably just as importantly, are you designing this with the same people who have always designed things in sort of the old way, right? And I, and again, I don't have any insight on, on how IBM went about doing it. There's some comments in the document, but I don't want to get into that. But if the people who are building the new thing are coming at it with years and years of experience of having done the old thing, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to have a fresh perspective on things. It's hard to think about things in a different way than you did before, right? So whether it's how you think about security or how you think about scalability or, uh, you know, if, you, if you're, you know, done decades of, of vertical scaling and now the, the paradigm is horizontal scaling, those are really different paradigms, right? And so you have to be thinking about how can I bring in engineering talent that, uh, you know, has domain expertise in this space? And you really probably have to get into sometimes a very different set of people than, than you've had in the past. Now, I've talked a lot about so far for well, 17 minutes now about all the technology behind becoming an incumbent. Well, the flip side of this and probably as much or more important is the business side of this, right? Because this is the piece that when everybody looks back, uh, historically looks back with 2020 vision, they go, how could anybody ever miss Right? How could the largest company that has the most money, um, that you know, is is the sort of the lighthouse for some segment of a technology, how could they miss and let some little company that has very little money um, ever beat them? Right? And and you know, this same argument, whether we're talking about you know IBM Cloud and AWS, or we're talking about you know Ford and General Motors and and you know Toyota and Honda versus Tesla, or we're talking about you know Netflix versus Blockbuster. You know, these things always boil down to when you have a very steady stream business, oftentimes a publicly traded business where you're you're on the clock every quarter, you've got to make quarterly numbers, you've got to you've got expectations that are sort of preset by Wall Street with you. Um, you know, the idea of completely disrupting that business is really, really difficult. And if you look at the companies who have been really successful at this, um, and especially in the technology space, you know, there's a couple things to think about. Number one, it's very rare when we go from one paradigm uh, of computing, right? So we went from mainframe to mini computers to PC to the internet era to uh, mobile computing, uh, you know, the World Wide Web being everywhere social, you know, eventually, you know, whatever they call Web3. These paradigms, if you think about it, there are very few companies who have survived through multiple layers of it, right? You know, multiple iterations of it. IBM is one of those who's actually survived quite a bit. Um, but you think about like Microsoft, right? Microsoft now, you know, once again, considered a giant, considered a giant during the PC days, but completely missed mobile, completely missed web, completely missed search, right? Um, you know, but, you know, was able to 
regroup because they had a massive, massive uh, problematic situation, right? And they had a change of leadership, right? Those are the things that are probably almost as important as can the incumbent change? And so if you think about it, um, you know, Part of the reason that Microsoft survived was they went through uh, the Steve Ballmer area to the Satya Nadella era, right? Steve Ballmer wanted nothing to, I mean, he screwed up mobile. He screwed up web. He screwed up a whole lot of things, but they still had a cash cow. He was able to keep that cash cow going. Satya was able to come in. We've talked about uh, Microsoft a few months ago about kind of their unbelievable transformation, but it takes leadership. It takes, uh, you know, a company to be able to make those changes, um, you know, and it, it takes, you know, sort of intestinal fortitude to be able to say, we're going to potentially go through some down quarters. We're potentially going to go through some pain with our customers. We're going to go through some pain of people really doubting whether or not we can do that. And, you know, so that's the first one, right? The second thing is, and and Aaron and I have talked about this a million times in the show, we tend to talk about it every year when we talk about, uh, or even every quarter when the quarterly numbers are announced, right? In order to make these huge changes, you've got to have some pretty large cash cow businesses, and you could argue, uh, in the case of IBM, well, gosh, you had a cash cow business. I mean, you had the mainframe. You were throwing off a lot of money. Um, but I think when we think about the competition that they're now going up against, whether it's Google, who has this cash cow business and something really, really different. Uh, in fact, they have multiple cash cow businesses, whether it's search and ads or Android or, or some other things, right? Whether you look at Microsoft, which had the cash cow business of Office and Windows, but mostly Office. Um, but they also, you know, had things like gaming doing fairly well, but they also had, you know, experience of having run large scale services, right? If you think about IBM, IBM's experience in running services tended to be on a client-by-client basis. They did a very good job of outsourcing. There was all sorts of success examples, but they weren't running global-scale web businesses, right? Like IBM had gaming. I mean, they were doing Bing, even though Bing wasn't doing terribly well. Google has had, you know, all of the things that they do on the cloud. I mean, they used to be the cloud prior to GCP and so forth. And Amazon, Amazon had the Amazon business, right? And, um, you know, they had this thing sitting behind them, customer number one, if you will, that was pushing them really, really hard. And if you think about the origin story of AWS, the origin story of AWS wasn't, hey, they have a whole bunch of spare capacity and they'll just sell it out. It was uh, Andy Jassy was tasked with trying to fix their IT problem, right? They're trying to fix their IT problem, which was Amazon was growing so fast. They were trying to offer different things around retail, uh, lots of very different things, and their IT structure couldn't keep up. So they became customer number one. And then the byproduct of that became, well, gosh, if we could do this for ourselves, maybe we can do this and offer this to, you know, external companies, right? But they've always had, you know, Amazon, which is a, you know, enormous business and continues to grow as customer number one, right? So the investments they were making around CapEx were also things that were going to benefit the main business. They weren't just, hey, let's do this as a standalone business. And I think if you really kind of boil down all the things that would have to change from being a hardware and centric, software centric company, right? On your own hardware, not even, you know, just software, but your own hardware, your customer base for the most part is very conservative. Um, they're the largest insurance companies and banks and government agencies and, and airplanes and all sorts of stuff. They're incredibly on-prem centric, right? Like they're not looking to make a lot of change. So you're not necessarily talking to them. They're not necessarily demanding these things from you, at least until later uh, in the industry. Your go-to-market is going to be radically different, right? You're used to having long contracts. This is now uh, changing from CapEx to OpEx. Um, you don't really necessarily know 
what the business is going to look like. Because if we go back to 2014, you know, the size of the Amazon business was about a billion dollars. And so, you know, if you go to your shareholders and say, hey, look, we're looking to make a, you know, multi-billion dollar investment into something that, you know, so far hasn't proven out to be even a billion dollars yet. Maybe it was a billion dollars. We'd have to look at when they switch from the other category to breaking out AWS. But at the time, I mean, Azure wasn't really a cloud business. GCP wasn't a cloud business. You know, this was kind of a, a upstart unicorn, right? And you put all those things together and it's not difficult to understand how, um, you know, as with anything in life, right? People tend to be a little more conservative in their investments to say, hey, I don't know if this is real. And I think the things that we invested in are okay. But if you look at it and step back and look at it holistically, yes, there was a lot of mistakes that were made. Uh, you can look at them in hindsight, 2020, you know. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, it's really, really difficult to go from being the incumbent when everything that you do has to change. The uh, sort of risk and certainty model of what you do is going to completely change. The leaders who are in place have probably been doing a reasonably good job. You could argue, you know, how the IBM leadership was doing, but but for other companies, um, you know, in many cases, their leadership is doing a pretty good job. Uh, they're meeting Wall Street expectations, which is ultimately their job, and you know it. It'll occasionally happen. It'll occasionally happen that we'll see a incumbent become um, able to fight back the the innovator, right? And in some cases, it takes leadership change. In some cases, it takes societal change. In some cases, it just takes you know, uh, kind of pushing your way through uh, you know th- uh, change, just changes that that happen, right? And I come back to you know looking at uh, Ford Motor Company and them launching the F one hundred and fifty, the the all electric Lightning F one hundred and fifty, and having previously launched the all electric uh, Mustang Mach E. I mean, they're going to be uh, as soon as the F one hundred and fifty starts shipping here, probably early 2022, They're going to be the largest all electric company in the world, um, you know, overnight. But you know, they're also ten years behind Tesla, and you know, but they were able to you know, reuse things that they did well, right? They were able to reuse a lot of their manufacturing. They were able to get over the fact that they weren't really necessarily going to be building the engine. They were going to have to partner with people. And so when I talk about, you know, in the case of cloud and technology, you have to understand the transition to cloud means understanding that almost everything in your technology stack and your business stack is going to change or get reinvented or built from scratch. You know, the ones who have gone through this and dealt with it, um, they, they, they dealt with those things, right? The ones who said, hey, I can do what I've done before with some small modifications, they've been the ones who have struggled quite a bit, right? And they've downplayed, uh, you know, the risk, the threat that it was. Um, but it's really interesting. I, I think, you know, it's easy to sort of jump on this, look at this IBM one. Um, you know, it's easy to uh, pick any company and go, hey, wow, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you see this major trend coming? Um you know, but it's also why, you know, all of us aren't necessarily, you know, super rich and can predict the future and so forth. But I think if we look at it more holistically, like what are the decisions that have to get made? What are the critical pieces of those decisions, both on the technology side, but the people and culture side and the business side of things? How do you change it? Um, you know, should you mainstream this? Should you do it as a separate entity? How do you, you know, kind of firewall these things off? How do you prevent people from leaving? All that kind of stuff really comes into play. And it's easy in hindsight to sort of point out what people did wrong. Um, I think what doesn't happen enough, and I've, you know, would love to see it happen more and more taught in business schools or, uh, you know, great examples kind of shown is how do you, how do you manage through that? If you're a leader and, and you see a transition coming, how do you deal with it? Because all the incentives that are put in place for you um, aren't there, 
right? They're not there to make those big changes, to make and shift investment into the new thing, right? They're just, they're not there in the short term, right? And we've seen people try and deal through this. We've seen Michael Dell try and take his company public and try and work through it. And maybe that thing will work out, but it's been a six, seven, eight year journey, 10 year journey to get there. Um, it's hard. It's really, really hard to do. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to take this perspective on Innovator's Dilemma. Um, I know I've kind of gone in a lot of different directions, but I think it's really important um, as we think about this really big industry that we're in that deals with a lot of money and some big companies and some small companies to really kind of have a framework in place to think about how do incumbents uh, deal with innovators? How do innovators attack incumbents? Um, you know, how do you, how do you, how can you kind of identify who you think might have a chance? Because again, keep in mind, uh, you know, in, in David and Goliath kind of situations, the little guy, the little team, the little company most times doesn't win, right? They got to get everything right. And the big one has to make a lot, a lot of mistakes. Um, but it happens occasionally and we celebrate that. And, and then, you know, when the, when the incumbent falls down or struggles or misses something, we, we tend to beat up on that as well. So, um, you know, they, they get their own fair share, so don't feel bad for them either way. But, uh, I thought this would be sort of an interesting sort of part two way of looking at, uh, the flip side of innovators dilemma. Would love to get your feedback. Uh, would love to hear stories that you've seen of, uh, incumbents who have been able to, to transition. Uh, would also love to hear some stories of, you know, different ways that the, uh, the innovators are able to chip away at the uh, at the incumbents and uh, really change markets. So feedback is always welcome. Show at thecloudcast.net. Thank you as always for telling a friend about the show. I, the show numbers have been uh, up, uh, probably up 20%, 30% the last couple of months. Uh, it's nice to see people coming back after vacation. I think maybe uh, some some podcast listening patterns are starting to change, but thank you as always for telling a friend. Thanks for helping us grow the show. Thanks for giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and all the way that you listen to your your podcast each week. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, Thanks for listening to the Sunday Perspectives, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 